Welcome to the Poets and Philosophers Podcast. My name is Abe. I'm here with my brother Sam, and we talk about the great ideas, we read the great books, and hopefully we'll have a great conversation. Today we're going to talk about uh, the great books of the Western world. Uh, this is a 50-plus volume set created by Mortimer Adler and many other Mac academics that had in mind that we should... Uh, give the regular man an education on what is known as the Great Conversation. In the show notes, we have a link to the PDF of this book because it is now out of copyright. And so if you want to read this, you're, you're very much welcome to. This first book, called The Great Conversation, was written by Robert Hutchins, who is the president of the University of Chicago. And before um, I... Uh, before we jump into this book, I think Robert Hutchins is an interesting character. Um, he was a different man of his time. So he became the president of the Chicago University of Chicago when he was 29 years old. Uh, that's just crazy, I think, in my own mind. Um, and he was just a very gifted, uh, gifted guy. And he saw education in a much different way than what many people saw education in his day. And this book really is about him kind of dividing that out and mapping it out. So that's what we're going to talk about. And I'm really, really excited to, to uh, talk about this book. Um, what's cool about uh, this great conversation or the, the, the great books of the Western world is back in May, Sam and I were down at our uh, undergrad college, uh, Florida college. And, uh, they were getting rid of all their duplicate books, and they had a set of the great books of the Western world they were getting rid of. So I, uh, I grabbed it and I shipped it back. Now, Sam, he's you have you have your set because your because uh, your grad school, right? Yeah i I purchased mine. I have mine on Logos, which mine's the 1990 edition. Um, but I have, and I forget mine goes up to like 62 volumes oh, maybe. Wow. Um, and yours is I think 50. Yeah. Like 54, I think. Um, but anyway, so I have mine on Logos, which is just a digital copy. And I also have mine in a paperback, which was pretty much just for luxury on my part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my local library here actually has the great books, the newer, I think, 1990 version. So I my plan is to read through it. Um, so far, I've gotten through the – I'm almost through the first actual book. I read this book, and then there's um, – the second volume has the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I'm almost done with the Odyssey. So read through the Iliad. And those I, – I didn't think those were – I could have got through those because I've tried to read them before and they're really hard to read. But, uh, man, we're going to do a podcast on probably both of those books at some point because the Odyssey, like last night I was just reading some really good spots of it and it was uh, it was really good. I was like, man, I, I can't believe I haven't read this book before. Like this is such a good book. So we'll be excited to talk about that. All right, so anyways, let's talk about this uh this first book here. Um, are yeah, you, you can go ahead and, yeah, you yeah, go ahead and jump okay. in and yeah. Okay. So, 
I hopefully I don't hear uh, bees yelling in the kitchen. So I don't. Yeah, know I hear every once in a that. while, but it's okay. All right. So, um, and just to let you all know that we're gonna we're a little bit changing our 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 format for reviewing and, and discussing um, today. Abe's going to share with us what he has learned by reading um, this. Uh, this essay by Hutchins. Um, is it an essay or is it full? Is it a book? It's a book. Yeah. It's about 10 chapters. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so yeah, I haven't read it. And, um, anyway, so I'm, I'm going to kind of play the role of a host and I'm just going to ask Abe some questions. I'll obviously interact with parts that I find fascinating or parts where maybe I, uh, don't understand something, but just to get us started, um, what what was Hutchins wanting to uh, accomplish with this book? So what Hutchins seems to be wanting to do is lay everything out, kind of introduce things. And I think we've kind of done some of this in this podcast, but it's always cool to hear a different voice kind of talk about this uh project of getting a liberal education. So I think with the main, one of the main things he's going to do here is number one, he wants to defend a liberal education. Uh, number two, he wants to call out the problems with the 1950s education. And number three, he wants to show that the great books are the starting point of a liberal education. So those are the three things he wants to do. And I think it'd probably be worth jumping into each of those just just a little bit with this. Okay, so when you talk about liberal education, um, I, th- I think I know what it means, obviously, because I'm kind of in that tradition. But I'm trying to think of another time we use the word liberal, and it actually means what it means here. So mm-hmm. um, maybe what, what, what does this mean by a liberal education? So – with liberal education, he, I think this, the way he explained it here really helps me understand what a liberal education is because he says that liberal education treats a person as an end and not a means. And so, like modern education, how this works is well, modern education and just even pre modern education. For the most part, like when you become a cobbler or you become a farmer or you become whatever it is, you are treated as a means to an end, you know, so like you go get education to, you know, lay bricks and that's just your role. Well, your, your job is just to learn how to do this, do this problem or your education is how to do this job so that you can succeed in life and you can, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're a serf or a slave or just somebody um, who's poor that has this job to make money. And so you don't, you don't have the ability to get any other education other than what can I learn so that I can make money? And that's treating education as a means and not an end. And you're treating even a person as a means and not an end as far as you just need to work and, or you, you need, you need to have an education, you need to have, you need to work. And so to do that, you need to learn how to work. And so that's all your education is going to be is just how to make money, how to be part of society. A liberal education is different than that. It treats a person as the end itself and not a means to something else. And I think that is very odd for most people because they think that 
um, well, at least most modern people or most people that, yeah, most people that go and get an education. Because one of the things we will ask somebody when they are getting an education, as far as whatever degree there is, we ask them, um, so, you know, what are you going to do with this degree? And I, I think, Sam, you've probably had other people ask you this question as far as what are you doing with your degree in uh, the humanities or I forget the exact program that's called that you're in. But most people think that this sort of pursuit is like, well, you're wasting your time, you're, you're wasting your money. But I've been thinking about this as far as even as it relates to the Bible. You know, we've got the uh, the Egyptians, or yeah, the Egyptians. Whenever they took over the Hebrews, and they enslaved them back in the book, uh, back between Genesis and Exodus, there, um, most likely they just taught those people there. Just here is your job, and here's how to lay bricks, or here's how to get water, here's how to gather straw, all that. That's just that's just what they learned, and they were able to not make a living because they were just there to work. But that's just how they functioned there. Whereas Moses is completely different. Moses, whenever he's taken up by Pharaoh's daughter, he's given what you could even call a liberal education in that he is shown all the great wisdom and, and literature of the Egyptian people. And that's where he gets it because he's the free person at that time. The, the Hebrew slaves were slaves. And so, he gets this liberal education. I think that does benefit him greatly in his own life. I think the same thing that happens with Daniel um, as well. But a liberal education, to even define it as far as very simply, he defines it in the book as, the, or he says the liberal arts, and the liberal education helps you with the liberal arts. The liberal arts are reading, writing, speaking. He even goes even further to say things like measuring, estimating, um, computing, uh, all of those are considered the liberal arts. And so that makes a person free. And those are things that you can learn because you're a free person. I think, you know, even um, in America with uh, slavery, it was uh, many times illegal for a, for a slave to uh, learn how to read. And, um, I think that has to do with this idea of these liberal arts is that, well, the free person, they can learn these things of reading, writing, and speaking and stuff, but you really don't need to need those to function as a slave or to do your particular job. So, so why do those? And so that seems to be why he, um, def- or that's what, what he's getting at as an education. So I, I just love that idea of treating a person as an end, not a means. I think that really resonates. I think that's still a problem today even as the reason why we go get an education is because we want to go get a job. Well, you don't have to go to the university or to college to do that. You can just go apprentice somewhere or go to even what's known as like a technical college today. But a liberal education is much bigger than that. And so that's – I really – I've been thinking about that ever since I read that section of the book, and it's really helped me even think about education. Yeah, so this is like a something that I've not really. I hear so many different theories of what a liberal, what liberal means, 
Um, I've heard, you know, that it's for the free person, you know, that only the free person was able to receive this education. Um, I heard that it's what you learn in order to become free, to be free from, you know, the cares of this world. You know, it's a liberal education. You're not so concerned with, um, you know, Gucci bags and I don't know what people are concerned about today. Um, you know, whatever's on sale at McDonald's or something. Um, you know, I am, I'm a liberal. I went to Faulkner university or I went somewhere. I got a liberal arts education, so I'm not worried about those things. Um, so yeah, that's helpful to use. Uh, it's an education that treats the student as an end and not a means, you know, it's not about pumping kids out, so they're using the economy. Um, John of Salisbury, who was born a hundred years before Thomas Aquinas, eleven twenty. This is what he wrote, um, and I think it's somewhat helpful. Uh, this is on page thirty-seven of his uh, Metalogicon. They are called liberal either because the ancients took care of their children, instructed in them or because their object is to affect man's liberation so that freed from cares, he may devote himself to wisdom. More often than not, they liberate us from cares incompatible with wisdom. So it seems that even back a thousand years ago, they were struggling with why exactly are they called liberal arts? And today, a lot of people are saying this is what it means and this is what it means. But likely, I, I know that uh, Augustine um, has his understanding of what the liberal arts is. And I forget what his, uh, what his, how he says the liberal arts are, are liberal. But anyway, so that's helpful um, thinking about um, the liberal arts in that way. I think it's kind of a hard thing to... Uh, um, to define and also, also to explain to other people because in America right now, we're so ingrained with a vocation is kind of a technical thing and it's not really to live a moral life, to live a, a good life. It's more about um, what, how, what, what job you're going to have. And um, I think if, I don't know, I'm not too, I'm not trying to like combat that too much in society. Um, I think, you know, if, if someone wants to, wants to be a welder, I'm not going to like poo poo that person by going and going to a college and learning, to become a welder. Or if someone wants to become a, you know, marketing expert, am I going to poo poo them because they want to go to a college and learn marketing? Um, I guess the only thing that I want to do is say, Hey, there's more to education than just um, your job, but I definitely don't want to be too hard on this. Cause I, um, I think that perhaps in the past I have been, and I'm trying to become more, I guess, balanced. Yeah. I, yeah. As far as our approach and how we want to discuss these ideas or even convince others to say, Hey, these are really cool ideas. And I think these are very meaningful to humanity. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough to, to find that balance because as soon as you start talking about the liberal arts of the great conversation, you just sound really stuffy. Um, you really do. I mean, you, you very holier than thou. Oh, okay. You know, I, I care about the, the 
honesty and integrity of my education. And I'm, I care about the virtues. I'm not really concerned with, you know, what, um, you know, a financial balance sheet, what a profit and loss statement is or whatever you're learning in, you know, financial management or uh, managerial, managerial accounting. Okay. So back to uh, Hutchins' book, what are what were the flaws that he he is kind of pushing up against as he writes? So I I found like four of them that I thought were were helpful, and one of them is actually that stuffy. Um, what time do you have to end? No, we're good. Um, oh. I was just saying okay. the poets and philosophers just posted. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> so good, good. Wow, I should have done it a little earlier than that. But all right. So with the flaws, um, he's got four of them, and um, yeah, the one of them there is actually the stuffy classicist problem. Is that in his day, part of when it came to learning the classics is that there was such a barrier to entry to learn the classics that it became just really silly to even get into it because you have these these professors who became more specialized and more specialized in their field to where you had to learn the uh, Greek, you had to learn the Latin, and then you would just study most of the classics education was, in the beginning at least, was just studying how to translate them. And you're not really learning their ideas if you're just spending time translating them. And that was not even the goal of the classes. It was just simply to learn how to conjugate, to decline verbs and, and all that kind of st- and nouns. So... He said, look, that, that shouldn't be that. We shouldn't have that sort of barrier to entry. We should have people read it in their original language that they, that they know and discuss the ideas rather than just learning how to um, you know, exegete the text there. So that was one of the th- issues he, he's, he's fighting. Another one he, he fights is he believes people have misread Dewey. Now, I can't get into this argument very well because I've never read Dewey himself. But he does give several long quotes in the book of Dewey, and his argument is is that most people believe Dewey leaned towards this sort of technical college approach, that we should teach people the occupations because this is really what kids need to know. They need to know how to, how to work and get a job. But he believes Dewey was actually saying, look, we should use the occupations. We should use different occupations to teach people because the occupations are just generally um, fascinating. They have an end. They have a goal. Uh, there's very, they're very concrete. So use these concrete tasks or these concrete things. And by using different occupations, we can lift people up to enjoying and getting at a liberal arts education. He argues that that kids should get a liberal arts education, but he argues we should use the occupations to to prime children and prime students to jump into the liberal arts. I can't really go much further into that argument because I really haven't read Dewey myself, but um, that seems pretty bold to state. But uh, Hutchins was also a very bold guy. Um, one of the things he did, which uh, I thought was really uh, funny, is that he he didn't think he thought that schools who talk more about their football teams had a serious problem. And so yeah, he actually got rid of varsity football at his college at the University of Chicago when he became president 
because he wanted it to be more about education, which also was another criticism he writes in the book, is that education has become really more about the extracurricular activities than the actual education bit itself. You know, we talk about, you know, well, why should people have an education? Well, it's good for team building because they can work on projects together. It's good for character building because, you know, it learns, it helps them to be somebody responsible for homework and um, responsible for participating in class. And that's just a good character building thing. Also, it helps them learn how to integrate themselves within society as a whole. And so those are the things that we want to do and accomplish which education. And I'm sure if you're listening, you've heard uh, teachers and principals and others write that this is what education really should be for, how to be a good person in society in the sense of being a wheel in a cog or um, learning those uh, learning how to, how to be a team player. And what Hutchins says is that you can accomplish all of these things with the extracurricular activities of a school. So, you know, the Boy Scouts or the YMCA, like those things, you can learn all these things how to do. And so what's happened is we focus more on the, or he says the, the extracurricular has become the curriculum of many schools. And I thought that was a really piercing insight because I, I think that's still a thing today where uh, you'll see schools advertise more about the extracurricular stuff than the actual education itself. Like I hardly see schools talk about their great education unless it's in terms of we have state-of-the-art technology in our schools, not you know, what you'll get here is something that is that uh, the type of education you'll get here is something you won't get anywhere else because it is, um, you know, steeped in tradition or whatever it might be. So those are two or uh, those are uh, three of the problems there. The stuffy classicist problem, misreading Dewey and the goal of modern education uh, and the goal being what ex- extracurriculars activities accomplish. The last one, he says, is a reliance on the experimental science, um, which is the idea that during his day, philosophy departments didn't function like the uh, math or the science or the biological departments. They were very much uh, not dealing with trying to uh, use those experimental science. So, you know, like the scientific method wasn't really something that was, well, I shouldn't say the scientific method, but experiments and um, a lab type uh, setting wasn't really done with philosophy as far as all those testings and such. It was a much different way of, a much different department. And so he argued that we have got to stop with this whole over-reliance on the experimental science because that's not the, that's not how philosophy is done. So he was very much against someone like Hume who would say, you know, find a book and does it have anything to do with numbers? Does it have anything to do with uh, things that can be empirically verified? If not, commit it to the flames, he says. So that's like that over-reliance on um, that, uh, over-reliance on the experimental studies. And then the last one, I, I really appreciate it as well because he says that um, that during his day there was a big move towards 
um, what he would call, he doesn't call it this, but I'll, I'll call it multicultural studies. And multicultural studies are about learning about, you know, the East or learning about um, non-Western culture. Because what we have to do is as a, as a giant group of people, as like the world, is learn about one another. And he makes a really funny insight that, that I enjoyed. He says, um, he says, those who argue for a, he doesn't say multicultural, but basically a multicultural education are the same group of people that say that we have nothing to learn from Plato, Aristotle, and Shakespeare. And so he's pointing out that, look, you are so concerned about somebody else's culture or somebody else's um, you know, cultural heritage, but yet you're not even willing to look at your own and study your own cultural heritage. So like, what are you actually trying to get at when you say, oh, we should have a multicultural study when you're not even wanting to, uh, when you don't believe we can get anything out of Plato or Shakespeare, which I thought was a really, uh, a really good insight of his. All right, yeah, that's a five uh, kind of big bullet points. I don't want to go off on any of those. I thought the Dewey point was interesting. I have not read – I think I've read a little bit of Dewey, um, and uh, I know he was a, uh, a student, I believe, of William James, uh, who was a thoroughgoing pragmatist, and <clears throat> actually one of my colleagues in – colleagues in uh, one of my classes this past semester was doing a paper on William James's uh, understanding of education. And uh, she was pretty excited about everything she learned from him. And she wasn't really sure why um, he gets kind of a bad rap with pragmatism. Anyways, I think it's very easy to um, read those things that you like and give those priority to make the person's, you know, to, to have the character. Like if I read a few th- good things about John Dewey, then I'm going to put those things that I read as priority over everything else that he wrote. Um, anyways, that's very interesting with Dewey. I need to, um, I don't know when I'm going to get the time to read him, but um, as of right now, I, I think that like he falls in line with the tradition of Rousseau. Um, you know, go out and learn. Don't be hampered by books. Um, it's it's all about experiment. But um, I, I think that I am very biased, and I think that likely there's a lot of good things I would learn from them. Okay, so we're talking about the great tradition. This is a huge question that me and my wife talk about because there are some times that I'll, you know, I'll take my education hook, line, and sinker, and with everyone that's not else, everyone else that's not bought in, um, sometimes I either look very, you know, holier than thou, uh, lofty um, when I argue my case that it's, it's about a quality education or it's about being moral, but why is it a, that someone should be interested in the great conversation? Like what is the good that you can learn from this conversation? Well, I think for Hutchins, um, he argues in chapter two, probably, probably one of his bigger points about this whole thing is 
that no age speaks with a single voice. And you have to understand that to really understand the past. I think one of the biggest faults we have today is that when we ever think about the past, we think that almost it's like every century or maybe even every decade, probably every century, spoke with one way about things. And this is just everybody's opinions all like fell in lockstep, which is silly to think about as soon as you think about our own age and like, is everybody thinking the same thing? It's like, no, like there are so many different ways of so many different perspectives. And so what's great about the conversation is that it's, it functions like a conversation. That's why it's important. In the beginning of the, um, in chapter one, he says that the reason why the West is the way the West is, is because of this, um, one of its products is this great conversation, is that we have this 2,000 or even more so history of writers talking about what other people have written in times past. Not that they've just written a good book and they just write a good book and it they don't speak to anybody, but there's this chain of people writing and conversing to one another that has this link all the way back to somebody like Homer. And that is something that you don't find, he argues, in any other culture. And so that's really great. But also the fact that no no voice, that no age speaks with the same voice. So when you're reading people that are contemporaries or even off by a few years, um, they have so many different perspectives on whatever it is. And it's through like learning what each person thinks and learning what, how they argue with one another, you begin to learn what the actual issues are. It's like whenever I want to learn about, you know, maybe some theological point or... Um, Yeah, so like recently I've been wanting to learn a little bit about the difference between um, uh, with like classical theism, that podcast we had with like Shane Scott versus like, I guess what even like the modern theism is, I don't know, divine personalism or a few other points they say. Like if I want to learn about that, I can learn, I can read a book on, you know, somebody who's wrote about – classical theism. And then I can go read a book on somebody who write a book on divine personalism. But if those ideas don't ever intersect inside the books, I don't know where the problem is. And so what's helpful to do is read people who say, well, these are the problems with my, the other side of this thing. And that's helpful to do. So reading different people who argue against those things. So when it comes to like education, like you want to learn about different people who wrote about this thing, but not only different people who wrote about it, but different people who wrote about it and then talked and mentioned other people's ideas that have been in the time past so you can get a better perspective on what they're trying to say. And so the way that um, Hutchins says, he says, there's a common belief that every age speaks with a single voice or that even every group of every age speaks with a single voice. Reading uh, the great books destroys that idea because it is filled with many voices speaking from very different positions. So that's simply how he writes with that. I think it's really helpful because it, it gives you a sense of humility in that anytime you have a conversation with anybody, you should be able to understand that, hey, um, just because they're part of this group or that group does not mean they're going to talk like everyone you think 
should talk in whatever particular group you're talking with. So I think it's a really good thing that the, the great conversation does uh, there. But yeah, as far as like, why is it good? I, I agree with you that it's always kind of hard to pinpoint all these things because it almost becomes, uh, what's the way to put it? Gnostic. Not, <laughs> no, 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 not Gnostic, but um, I, I forget. It's not autotelic because that's like, you know, yeah, no, no, yeah, it's autotelic. That's the right word. Um, so like autotelic is like, it's good for its own sake. You know, like there's some things that are good just simply for its own sake. And you don't have to like say, well, it's good for this reason and that reason, and this reason. No, it's just good. Like we don't have to talk about all the specific things, you know, it's like eating food is just good or sleeping is just good. Like we don't have to talk about all the, you don't have to like argue with somebody that sleep is good. And I think that these books help- are good. Yeah, that, that is a helpful point, though, to think through that every age um, has a complexity of viewpoints. And when you engage in a conversation, you are quiet and silent and listening and curious to see what is this person saying. It's not like, oh, they're wanting me to use, you know, their, their you know, they, them, their pronouns. Uh, I already know what they're going to say, but maybe it's just like, no, maybe they're coming from a different perspective and maybe it's not about legislation of pronouns or anything. Um, Like there is a multiplicity of viewpoints and uh, that's helpful. It's also helpful to know when these viewpoints rear their heads again. And that's one thing with like, you know, Epicureanism with deism, there's, a lot of similarities or I was just reading uh, last night. I actually just got, you know, finished reading, uh, writing a paper. I think there's a lot of similarities between stoicism and existentialism. And when I mean existentialism, we're not going to go into it, but I do not agree with existentialism kind of at all. As far as the atheistic, humanistic version of it. I actually do not believe Soren Kierkegaard is really the father of existentialism. But anyways, um, it's uh, just knowing the conversation and then being familiar with it enough to say, oh, wow, I think think they're somewhat carrying the Stoicism's ideas. They're trying to be independent from any – outside conditions to be content wherever they find themselves so that they aren't reliant on some deity. Um, anyways, like it, it's very helpful to think through that stuff. Um, so that, yeah, that's a, that's a helpful comment. And I think that anytime that we are encouraged to be humble when we approach, uh, someone's ideas that contradict ours or, con- uh, you know, to that, that they rival our ideas, um, any any person who ever says, hey, be humble enough to listen to them is uh, surely going to be on key. Um, just uh, in the few minutes that we have left, a what, what were highlights for you for this book? Yeah, I got a few, few highlights that I thought were just really great. I think um, the, probably the biggest one when I was thinking through what was great about this book is he has a line in there that youth 
is the time to get yourself prepared to get an education. And he says, you know, you might read about somebody who's a 16-year-old who wrote a paper in astronomy and it gets published and it's like really great. But you're never going to find a 16-year-old who writes a paper on philosophy or something along those lines and they're going to like, you know, splash into the um, the academic philosophic world. Like that's just not going to happen because when you're a young person, when you're a youth, you are getting yourself ready to actually learn about an education. And I like this point because, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't get, I didn't really spend time with the great books and reading all that, even though for a lot of young people today, um, whether it's going to a classical school or just being homeschooled and, and getting that, reading those books, um, you know, part of me is like, man, I wish I could have had been able to read some of these stories when I was younger. Um, I think what's funny about that is that even if I would imagine, even if I read these stories when I was younger, I don't think I would have cared about them. I don't think I would have cared about them till a little bit later. So I like that uh, point that he makes is that, look, you're not, you're, you're getting ready to get education. It's not till much later in life. Do you actually, um, do you actually like, Oh, now it's, now it's actually time to get an education. So I think that was great. Um, I think also too, that, his point about philosophy shouldn't be an experimental science in that we shouldn't um, always ha- shouldn't deal with in the realm of uh, scientific, uh, I don't know, v- uh, empirical verificationism. I think it's the term there is that, you know, any statement you can't empirically verify, you just disregard. Um, that shouldn't belong in the world of philosophy. It should be much more robust and um, you should let, uh, let it go beyond that because I think that's that's just how we talk and common speak. We go beyond the uh, the world of experimental science. So that was really good. And then just it was great also. It helped me see the problems with education today. And it's funny, some of the stuff that he would read talk about in the 1950s or so when he published this book, It's those problems are still problems of today. And um, it's not like they've changed all that much. In fact, I think Things are more going towards more uh, specialization, and he argued against that as far as, look, we all need this general education, and then we continue on to specify later on, which is why when you go to college, you have your gen ed courses. And I think those gen ed courses are supposed to be that liberal education that you're supposed to get, whereas, uh, whereas you know, kids, I don't think, realize that that's what that's for is that liberal education. That's why you're reading history or um, poetry or whatever class you might take. Like Those things help you round yourself out and become a, a human being that's not just there to punch in and punch out at your job. You've got a much bigger thing going on. Yeah. <clears throat> just when you talk about, you know, because obviously we had the same education – we were both homeschooled. Uh, you know, we did Saxon math and I read, you know, Sam, the minute man and everything else. But sometimes I do think about, you know, what would it be like if I had, you know, a classical education? Is that something I actually yearn for? I honestly kind of don't. And I kind of worry if I ever would really like kind of 
get upset if I, you know, I should be farther than I am now. Uh, I don't ever really want to feel like that. I, I feel like even those things that I know now, even if I would have had learned a lot more, one, I don't think I was motivated, so I don't think it really would have mattered. Um, but also, I think I struggle to apply the ideas that I already have, that if I were to learn more, I'm not sure how much good it would do. And I almost do, you know, kind of get cured, you know, I think it's amazing that you're reading through, you know, I can actually see behind you right now, all those books lined up on your shelf. To me, that kind of makes me anxious. I don't, I actually, I don't really have an aspiration to read all of them. I, um, I much rather know a few and be able to, to read them very slowly. Cause these are, you know, books that you can read time and time again and, um, you know, it's helpful. I, I want to be a generalist. I don't want to just be a, you know, a Kierkegaard scholar, but in a way I really want to know a few and then use that wisdom to serve other people. Uh, in one of our classes recently, uh, we were looking at Solomon, you know, so when Solomon goes to become King, he prays for wisdom, not for himself, not because he wants to, you know, contemplate the celestial realm or anything. He wants to know how to help other people, how to uphold justice within his kingdom. And I think, you know, we together, as we learn, how are we going about being moral, you know, and that's such an odd issue too. How do you learn to be moral? Is it really information that is going to make the change? But, um, anyways, I just, um, I've, I'm still just like kind of toying with that idea about how, how would Sam be different if he did have a classical education? Um, perhaps I would be, you know, upset at the great tradition because I was forced to learn it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, for those out there who didn't get that sort of education, but you're re- listening to this podcast, I think it's a good point to make is that, you know, when a, I think he even makes this point in the book where he says, you know, some like a teenager reading Shakespeare is much different than somebody who's in their 30s reading Shakespeare. And I think he's exactly right. Um, so, this sort of education is for adults. And he argues that this, the great books is not for kids. It's, it's for adult education. He's got stuff, or at least Mortimer Adler and others have done stuff for children, but th- this is an adult education. And it's funny that the word adult has become like the, the word adult as a, ver- as a, as an adjective has become this meaning of like, you know, sexual or, um, you know, dirty you know, like an adult film is like a film that deals with, you know, pornographic materials or, you know, this is a very adult conversation, meaning like it's dealing with, you know, sexual things, but um, it shouldn't, really shouldn't be that way. It should be, it means that we're, we're talking about things that, that children just could not understand, even if they think they understand it now, they want to understand it too much later. So this is an adult education in which I, I like, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not actually listening to these. Uh, I mean, I'm not even, I'm not actually reading these books. Like I am reading them to some degree, but I'm mostly listening to them on, on audiobook. So that's how I've been getting through 
the Odyssey and the Iliad. Um, but I'll probably go back and, and read them on the read them uh, read them rather than just listening to them. But that'll be it for another conversation about you know jumping into the the great books. So. All right, everyone. We appreciate you guys so much listening, and we know that we've been a little lax in our um, getting podcasts out, but we're going to try to do this more consistently. We've both had some things come up in our own lives that made it a little difficult to do, so we're back at it. So if you would, if you would share this on uh, social media, on Facebook, or wherever, and just you know tell somebody about this podcast. We really appreciate that, and. Uh, Review it on Apple Podcasts. That always helps uh, boast it up a little bit there. But I hope this podcasted you good in some way, and I hope you can use it some somehow. But we appreciate you all, and we'll uh, talk to you guys in the next episode.